You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. At this time, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles. The Bible that you brought with you or the Bible that's there in the pew to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. That's page 672 in your pew Bible. If you're using your phone or tablet, we use the YouVersion Bible app. You just follow those instructions, hit Grace Lutheran Church, and you'll get right to the scripture for this morning. Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Hoping that most of you are there. Let's hear the word of the Lord. It reads, Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal You shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus then said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Well, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, if you haven't been with us in a little bit, we're in the second week of a new sermon series called Jesus Never Said That. And in case you forget, (laughs) this is going to work. I worked really hard on this. Okay? Let's put this right here. So if you forget everything else, you can remember. Okay? All kidding aside, the focus of this series is to identify popular sayings that have been incorrectly attributed to Jesus. Statements that have been erroneously repeated on Christ's behalf by both well-meaning followers of Jesus and non-believers alike. Our goal over these next few weeks is not just to point out what's wrong, what Jesus never said. More importantly, our focus is to clarify what's right, what Jesus did say, and how that ought to shape what we believe and how we act in following Christ. Today we focus on a popular saying anyone remotely aware of Jesus has at one time or another in their lives heard and attributed to Christ. It's a little bit of an echo coming in from the mic. I'm not sure if we can do anything about that. Many of us have said it ourselves. Others have heard it on TV from well-meaning friends or read it in books. If you actually type this phrase into Google, you'll find 2,900,000 results in about 0.40 seconds. For me... Without question, this is the most quoted Bible verse that isn't in the Bible 
at all. What is it, you ask? Here it is. God helps those, you know the rest, who help themselves. Jesus never said that. This statement is not in the Bible. So where does it come from? The origins of this well-known phrase actually go back 400 years prior to Jesus from a piece of literature that you actually probably know called Aesop's Fables. It comes from a story called the story of Hercules and the Wagoneer. There's this man driving his wagon. He's carrying a heavy load, and so the heavy wagon, of course, gets stuck in the mud. And so this man, this wagoner, cries out to Hercules for help, to which Hercules, the demigod, replies, get up and put your shoulder to the wheel. The gods help them that help themselves. Now, you might ask, how does this line from Greco-Roman myth then become part of our repeated biblical truisms? It, again, doesn't come from the Bible. It gets to us from Benjamin Franklin. In the 1757 publication of the, his Poor Richard's Almanac, Franklin slightly modified this saying to God helps those who help themselves, and we've been misquoting this slogan as scripture ever since. This statement that Jesus never said is so well-known and widespread. In fact, it was featured as part of a survey done by the Barna Group a few years back. I don't know if you remember it or you're aware of it. In that survey by the Barna Group, eight in 10 Americans reported they were pretty sure this mythical verse could be found in the scriptures. Countless people believe this statement is either from the Bible or based on something in the Bible. In fact, more than half of the people responding to this Barna survey were strongly convinced this slogan, God helps those who help themselves, was a major emphasis of Jesus' teachings. Jesus never said that. But apparently, a lot of us are convinced he did. Or at the very least, this phrase communicates something we choose to believe comes from the mouth of Christ. That in some way, we want Jesus to have said, God helps those who who help themselves. Why? I think there's two reasons I'd like to talk to you about this morning. There's two reasons why we want Jesus to say God helps those who help themselves. First, if God helps those who help themselves, if Jesus did say that, then this reinforces our belief we are in control of our lives. If God helps those who help, our, help themselves, then this reinforces our belief that we're in control of our lives. Now, I know that many of you right now are going, well, I, don't, I know that God's in control. I'm not in control of my life. That's why I'm here, man. That's why I'm here this morning. And I'm going to ask you to do something really radical this morning. I'm actually going to ask you to be honest with yourself. I know. Shocking. I'm going to ask you right now to think about, to reflect on, not what you're thinking now while you're sitting here in church in a pew, not what you're thinking about because it's Sunday morning. I want you to be honest with yourself, and I want you to really reflect on functionally, practically, how you live day to day. Because I'll bet that functionally and practically, most of us operate day to day according to this belief. God helps those who help themselves. We live day to day, as though our actions determine our access to and our blessings from God. I mean, come on, this is the heart of our American DNA, right? To be self-reliant, to be self-made individuals. People, come on, life's not just gonna hand us things. Life's not just gonna hand you things. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You have to work for what you have. You have to earn what you get. That's how this country was built, gosh darn it. 
That's the ethos behind every success story we hear and repeat, is it not? They had nothing. They started with nothing. They faced incredible oppositions. No one was giving them a break, but they put their nose to the grindstone. They pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. They just kept working it, and one day they made it. They rose to the top, and you can too, because God helps those who help themselves. This is how we functionally, practically live. I mean, let's be, again, honest. Don't we judge those around us according to this standard? We look around and we see and we hear about people who declare themselves helpless, right? Who insist they're trapped by their circumstances, you know? The person lamenting about their poverty or their homelessness. That refugee desperately lobbying to escape violence or war. That prisoner who's locked up and longs to be released. The person of color or another gender who cries out against racism or sexism. We see people like that all around us. We hear their stories and their pleas for help. And deep down we think, well, they must have done something to get in that kind of trouble. Where you find yourself didn't just happen by accident, right? Stop whining. Stop whining. Quit looking for a handout. Put in the work. Put in the work. Use what God has given you to help yourself. We look and hear about such people and we perceive the difference between them and us as being our initiative. Our initiative, right? Our right choices. We didn't make excuses. We put in the work. If we believe God helps those who help themselves, it doesn't take much to also convince ourselves God helps those who don't get into that kind of trouble in the first place. Deep down, we want to be in control of our lives. We want to be in control. And deep down, we want God to be fair. That's the second reason why we want to think Jesus said God helps those who help themselves. Because deep down, we want God to be fair. If God helps those who help themselves, then God is acting fairly. And we want God to be fair. Good people get good things. Do good and good things happen. Do bad and, well, you get bad things. You get what you deserve. Isn't that how we see it? After all, that's what's fair, right? If we work hard, then our hard work should pay off. It's only fair. If we follow the rules, then we ought to reap the benefits. It's only fair. If we keep our nose out of trouble, then no trouble should come our way. It's only fair. If we confess our sins and turn our lives around for Jesus, if we read our Bible, if we pray regularly, if we donate to charity, if we attend church and otherwise live a moral life, then God ought to respond by blessing us. Isn't that the deal? Isn't that the deal? God's supposed to be fair, isn't he? To further unpack this line of thinking, to tease it out a little bit more, to get behind this idea of God helps those who help themselves, let's consider the person who encountered Jesus in our reading from today, and maybe we'll see a little more of ourselves in this story than we care to admit. Depending upon which account of this encounter you read, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is either, this person is either a regular citizen or he is a specific ruler of some kind. But all three of them report him as being two things. He's young and he's rich. So apparently, this guy has done well for himself early on in his life, right? 
Coming up to Jesus, I love this. Coming up to Jesus, this guy cuts right to the chase. He gets right down to business. This self-made man who's used to targeting a goal and then working hard to hit the mark just comes right out and says, Jesus, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? This guy doesn't walk up and say, what good thing can you do, must you do, for me to have eternal life, Jesus. No, he doesn't say that. This guy who believes he's in control of his life says, how can I get it? Me, how can I do it? And immediately you see that Jesus tries to redirect this man by pointing out that anything good in his life has nothing so ever to do with himself. Jesus says, hold on. All goodness comes from God. And there's nothing, you know, I, there's nothing here, but seemingly, as Jesus says, all goodness comes from God. Hold on. I seemingly imagine this man just nodding his head. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Go ahead. Go on. Go on. Yeah, yeah. Right. I got it. All glory to God. Right. What do I got to do? What do I got to do? He misses the point. So Jesus goes on. Don't miss this. Well, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Notice, first of all, the shift in Jesus' answer, right? It's not about possession. This guy says, how do I get eternal life? It's not about eternal life in terms of quantity. How do I live forever and ever like we talked about last week? No, Jesus' response is about not possession but orientation. It's not about getting. It's about entering. Entering into life that is eternal in quality, not quantity. Full and abundant life with God now and forever. Jesus says, if you want to enter into that kind of life, he suggests following God's top 10. Now, this is really important. Jesus points to the law, not as 10 easy steps for going to heaven. We covered this last week. It's not like Jesus says, okay, you want to get into heaven, you want to turn to life, step one. No. Jesus points the law, God's top 10, as the blueprint for how God created us to live together. God, Jesus points to the law as, the, as orientation to the kind of life, eternal life, life together, reconciled and restored in perfect communion with God and with each other, for which he, Jesus, came to deliver us. You'll remember elsewhere, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. But here's the thing, Jesus points to God's top 10 because this isn't the kind of life we can just help ourselves to. It's beyond us by ourselves. But again, this self-assured, self-made person completely misses the point. This gets me every time I read this story, right? Jesus points to the law, not as, again, 10 easy steps, but as to kind of redirect him in terms of what you're asking for. And this guy, without missing a beat, right, seemingly without pause or a moment's hesitation, this guy answers, no problem. No problem. All these I have kept. Can you with me imagine even Jesus' mouth falling open? No problem. No problem. All these I have kept. In some versions of this encounter, this gets, it gets even worse. In some versions of this encounter, it's recorded, he responds, no problem, all these I have kept since I was a boy. This guy, this guy's a piece of work. This guy views himself as so accomplished, such a prodigy, right? So in control of himself and his life, he doesn't respond. Think about this. He doesn't say, you know, Jesus, you know, it's taken me a while. Wow, man, most of my life, to figure out the Ten Commandments of God, but I think now I've got it. Oh no, this guy goes, God's top 10. Oh, I mastered that years ago. 
I was a kid. I had that wired. Viewing himself as in control of himself and of his life, this man expects God to be fair. This man expects God to be fair. For this guy, the narrative is God helps those who help themselves. Greater actions ought to lead to greater access. He's done his part, right? Presumably mastering the law, so now he wants the gospel. Hey, hey, give, give this guy a break, okay? He's not asking for a handout, right? He's not asking for something for nothing. He's willing to do more. He just wants to know what he needs to do to go the extra mile. He's memorized and followed the rules. Now he wants to help himself to eternal life. Think about this for a second. Here's a guy who comes to Jesus with an impressive resume, right? This guy's got a lot of drive. He's got tons of confidence. Seriously, we'd hire this guy, right? Man, we're looking for young bucks like you. People who know what they're after and grab it and take it and make something of themselves. We like your gumption. We like your confidence. We like your resume. Ten Commandments when you're a kid, that's the kind of person we're looking for. We'd hire this guy. But stop it for a second and realize, for this man, his question to Jesus, as well as his anticipated next action, is all based on his leverage. It's all based on his success. It has nothing to do with who God is. It has nothing to do with what God has done. It has nothing to do with what God, only God, can do for him. And that's why Jesus tries to redirect this man yet again. Okay, you still lack one thing, Jesus says. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Sell everything. Once again, please understand, Jesus isn't giving this man a final task to earn his place. Well, you accomplished God's top ten. There's just one more step you need to take, and then heaven is yours. No. Jesus isn't giving this man one final step to take. Jesus, in answering this way, is helping this man to confront and remove the biggest obstacle, what is getting in the way of his reception, of his entering into eternal life. And what is that obstacle? Himself. Again, the whole point of Jesus' nod to the Ten Commandments was not a checklist of steps to be accomplished. The point of God's top ten, the law, is twofold. One more time, let me give this to you. Twofold. First, the law is given to us to envision the kind of life, the kind of world God created and desired for us. If all these things actually were perfect, this is the kind of life we would have. This is the kind of world we would live in, where we honor each other, where we don't kill each other, where we don't lie, where we don't steal where we don't waste our time on idols, all of these things. That's the kind of life. It's a picture of the kind of life God created for us and desires for us. But the point of the law, secondly, is for us to realize we can't achieve that kind of life or make that kind of world on our own. We can't achieve that kind of life or make that kind of world on our, own, on our own. The purpose of the law, in other words, is to reveal to us how out of control we are. How out of control this universe is. And therefore to lead us to focus, to yield, and to follow God. To let the Lord drive our lives and this world. Sell everything and follow me is Jesus trying to help this guy get out of his own way. 
Jesus is calling this self-made man to face his lack of self-control, to die to himself, to what this man thinks he deserves, to what he believes he's earned, and to rely solely on him, on Christ. As Jesus will express it, not here, but on another occasion. Jesus will express it this way, not here, but some other time. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But you know this story, you heard it, you know it too well, right? This man can't do it. This man can't do it. We're told this guy went away sad because he had great wealth. And don't, careful, careful here, okay? Careful here. Moments later, Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Careful here. Be really careful. All this talk of wealth and riches isn't just about money. It isn't just about money. It's about money, yes, but it's also about property. It's about possessions. It's about relationships. It's about time. It's about skills. It's about experiences. It's about all of it. All the stuff we perceive as having absolute control over. All of the things we believe we deserve, we've earned, over which we have first say and therefore ownership. To this man who believes he is in control, Jesus isn't being fair. You're asking too much, Jesus. You're asking too much. Why should I have to give up what is rightfully mine? I worked hard to get here. I earned this stuff. I deserve it. I need it. Come on, Jesus, who am I without all this stuff? Who am I without all this stuff? What do I have? What do I have to show for myself, my life, without all of this? This guy is looking for a conditional, synergenic relationship with God. You know, a partnership, right? Look, I'll do my part, Lord, and you do yours. I'm not asking for what I'm not willing to work for. And you, in return, give me what I deserve. That's fair. That's fair. What you're asking me to do, Jesus, I, I can't. I can't do it. I can't. I just can't. I can't sacrifice everything. I can't give up what, what I'm convinced makes me who I am. What I am. The disciples, did you catch this? Feel this guy. The disciples feel this guy, right? All of them cannot wrap their heads around what just happened. They can't wrap their heads around what just happened. They're like, oh, 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 wait a second. If someone like that, so young, so young, so successful and accomplished, a person who's worked so hard and accumulated so much, if he can't get eternal life, well, then who can? And Jesus, by the way, agrees it's hard. It is hard for those who are rich, for those who are self-made, perceiving and insisting they are in control, those who want to help themselves to eternal life. Jesus says it is impossible. They can't do it. On their own, they can't give up what they falsely believe makes them who they are, what they are. They aren't able to sacrifice everything. With humanity, Jesus says, it is impossible but then he adds, but with God, all things are possible. You can't do it. Beloved, that's the point. Do you get that? That's the point. We can't do it, but Jesus can. 
I really, this story, you notice how this guy's done all the talking, but in this moment, at the very end, he doesn't say a word. It just says he went away sad. He doesn't say anything. I, I don't know, but I'm convinced if this man just said, I can't do that, I don't think Jesus would go, well, then on your way then. If this man had just said the truth out loud, I can't do that, I can't help myself, Jesus would have put his hand on his shoulder and said, I know. I know you can't, but I can. I will. My friends, we can't do it. We can't help ourselves, but Jesus can. We can't give up. We can't give up what we wrongly believe defines and drives us. But Jesus gives himself up for it, doesn't he? He gives himself up for us to truly know who we are. He gives himself up for us to fully live the life for which we were created. We aren't able to sacrifice everything to enter the kingdom of God. We're not able to do that. We're not able to sacrifice everything to enter the kingdom of God that's right in front of us. But Jesus can. Jesus has. We can't help ourselves. But God in Christ helps us. Jesus dies so we can live forever. He sacrifices everything. This is the gospel. Not that we help ourselves to eternal life, but that God comes down in Jesus Christ to help us. Jesus, again, will say this elsewhere. We didn't choose him. You didn't choose me, Jesus says. I chose you. Our Father, our Creator, God, always takes the initiative. We witness this again and again in the biblical story. God always makes the first move, whether it's breathing life into humanity, whether it's calling Abraham to be the father of a people whom God would work through to undo the tragic consequences of our rejection and rebellion of divine love, whether it's summoning Moses to free the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, or anointing David to unify the warring tribes of Israel into one nation, or sending forth prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah to offer a word of hope and promise when everything looks like it's just fallen apart, or whether it's ultimately condescending from glory, the glory of divinity to become human, a servant for our redemption in Jesus Christ, God is always the initiator. And God's initiative is not just confined to the pages of Scripture. Woven into the fabric of our day-to-day -day existence, the initiative for all that is good always starts and ends with God, not us. God. Ideas and actions of justice and compassion, mercy and forgiveness, imagination and wisdom, all of these have their origin not apart from the Lord, but thanks to the divine image in which we were created being truly reflected through our humanity. God always leads God always initiates. You know, and what I just said, if you're, you're tracking with me, in a sense, when you think about it then, we do have some measure of control over our lives. God has given us some measure of control over our lives. I mean, each of us, by the grace of God, has been given a mind, a heart, and a will to exercise within our own person and in community with others. We can and do face choices every day. We make decisions and take actions that have real and impactful consequences. We have some measure of control by God over our lives. But here's the thing, here's the point. This measure of control that we have is not greater, is not beyond or outside the power, influence, and sovereignty of God. 
When it comes to how we relate to God, when it comes to how we're saved by God, when it comes to how we're changed, walking and maturing through Jesus, when it comes to how we come together and become one in Christ, we are not in control. God doesn't wait around, right? God doesn't wait around hoping we'll make the first move to believe. God doesn't wait around to make the first move hoping someday we'll just have faith in him. God doesn't wait around for us to turn to him to help ourselves because we can't help ourselves. God takes the lead and continues to lead already acting in the world to the good of all humanity. Even in the midst of and often despite our folly and outright evil acts. There's a reason why the Bible calls us children. We are children, the children of God. We are the children of God because we are entirely dependent and wholly reliant on the Lord's initiative, the leading and empowerment of the Holy Spirit in and through our lives. Our part, our response, our cooperation flow out of, from our access to and experience of Jesus Christ, not vice versa. Our relationship with our creator, in other words, is not one of partnership. Please stop saying we're in partnership with God. We're not in partnership with God. We're not equals with God. God helps those who help themselves is the language of partnership. Partners each have their part to play. I do my part, you do yours. If I've done my part, then you owe me your part. We are not equals with God. We are not partners with God. Our relationship with God is not one of partnership. Our relationship with God, here it comes, is one of stewardship. Ooh, there's that word we all don't like, right? Because we want to be in control. We want it to be fair, but our relationship with God is not one of partnership. Our relationship is one of stewardship. We control nothing, not even our own lives. We are caretakers of all that God provides, all that we are and all that we have. Because don't you see, God helps those who help themselves is to presume God owes us something. Once again, that God should be fair. The rich young man here wants what is fair. He wants what's coming to him. He's willing to do what it takes, what's fair, to get eternal life. And we go, yeah, that's what we want. We want that kind of relationship with God. We want God to be fair. But people, when we insist, yes, we want God to be fair, do we understand that what we really mean is we want a God who is fair according to our standards? See, when we say we want God to be fair, our definition of fairness is based upon our perception of being in control. It's based upon our perception that we're at the center of all things. It's based upon our perception that we determine our own destiny. If you think you determine your own destiny, if you think it's all about you, then absolutely you want God to be fair. But you want God to be fair according to your perception of fairness, right? Fairness for us in this way is getting what you deserve. And that means that what you get changes and fluctuates based upon what you've done or what you haven't done. And here's the thing, if God operated according to our standard of fairness, are we still being honest with each other this morning? If God even operated according to our standard of fairness, let's just say it, eternal life would be out of the question, right? <laughs> out of the question. And if God operated according to our standard of fairness, let's just push it further, life in general for all of us would be cut short pretty quick, right? 
once we realize, and that's why this matters, that's why this is so important this morning, once we realize we are not in ultimate control, that it's Christ and not us at the center of all things, that our past, present, and future are in God's hands and not our own, the standard of fairness shifts dramatically, does it not? Jesus articulates a different standard that actually is best captured from a scene from John chapter 8. You'll remember this story. A woman is caught dead to rights in adultery. No question here, dead to rights in adultery. She has clearly broken the law. She sinned, so she ought to pay the price. Fair is fair, right? This woman who is guilty, hands down, this woman who is defenseless, who cannot help herself, is saved by Jesus. This outcome isn't fair according to our perception of fairness. This is not fair. But the God we look to, revealed in Christ, doesn't operate according to what we perceive as fairness. Thank God. The gospel is God doesn't give us what we deserve. My friends, hear this. God isn't fair. But God is impartial. Impartial in giving us grace. We worship a God who is so impartial, he perceives all as people to be loved. All. We look to a God who is so impartial, his love extends beyond our conditions, beyond our logic, beyond even our imagination. We magnify a God who is so impartial, Jesus calls for us to love our enemies. And then he dies for them. He dies for us. And this impartiality of grace, this impartiality of grace is not something we can help ourselves to. Grace is a gift. It's not just something we can take or get. It can only be extended to us. Jesus gives this woman grace. And here's where I'm going to alter what I've told you. From this story, Jesus doesn't just help her here. He saves her. Here's where I'm altering what I've already said. The gospel is not that God helps us. God doesn't just help us. The God isn't God helps those who can't help themselves. The gospel isn't that God helps us help ourselves to eternal life. That's not right either. The gospel is that God saves us by grace, saves us from ourselves so we can enter into eternal life. Jesus doesn't just help you. Jesus doesn't just help us. Jesus rescues those of us who've dug ourselves into a hole that we can't get out of. Jesus doesn't just help us. Jesus raises up those of us who've been thrown into a hole by life and left to die. God saves those who can't help themselves is the declaration of grace. God helps those who help themselves is the declaration of privilege privilege. To believe that God helps those who help themselves is to presume that God is our assistant rather than our foundation. The rich young man wants an assist. Let's be honest. He wants an assist, right? He wants a boost from Jesus. Jesus, I got this all figured out. Just give me the secret password. Give me the extra step. Tell me the little thing I need to know and I'm good. I'll leave you alone. This guy wants an assist from Jesus. He wants an assist, a boost, rather than to release everything else and have the foundation of his life built on Jesus. 
To think God helps those who help themselves is to look at God as our assistant rather than our foundation. And we can look at this man and we can presume, man, he just totally screwed up. He got it so wrong. But again, if we're being honest with ourselves, practically, functionally, don't we approach our relationship to Jesus exactly the same way? Don't you want Jesus to be your assistant rather than the foundation of your life? Careful before you answer. Be honest. Because this is what I hear in my own life. I don't know about yours. Jesus, take the wheel. Yes. Take the wheel when I'm in trouble. Take the wheel when I am lost. Take the wheel, Lord. But otherwise, stay on your side of the car because I'm driving. <laughs> if I'm lost, if I'm lost, if I'm in trouble, oh, by all means. But otherwise, I'll let you know if I need you. Please don't bother me. Forgive us, Father, because we don't know what we're saying. We don't know what we're doing. And thankfully, the Lord does because the gospel isn't helping ourselves. The gospel is God saves those who can't help themselves. And when I say that, I really want you to hear the double meaning. The idea that the gospel is God saves those who can't help themselves. It's not just that we can't help ourselves. It's literally, we can't help ourselves. Paul says, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. We literally can't help ourselves. We can't help ourselves. But God can. And God does. And why this is, again, why this is so significant, why we got to get this, is because once we begin to understand this, that God saves those who can't help themselves, we also begin to comprehend that sharing the gospel, this good news, comes by our helping others in the name of Jesus who can't help themselves. Maybe you have trouble sharing the gospel because the gospel you actually functionally practically live out is the gospel that God helps those who help themselves. But when you understand the gospel is God saves those who can't help themselves, you can share that gospel by helping those who can't help themselves. Let me put this another way, and I'm not trying to trash on something that is a kind of widespread appeal, but so many of us, we talked about like the, the prayer we pray, and we're all good with God, and part of those, that prayer that we talked about last week is, it ends with the culmination of did you ask Jesus into your heart? How many of you have Jesus in your heart? Raise your hand if Jesus is in your heart. Come on, raise your hand. God better see some hands. Because that's it, right? Did you ask Jesus in your heart? And I don't want to tramp on that too hard, but did we ever stop and think about that for a second? That whole idea of Jesus is in our heart, that maybe we've got that backwards that maybe somehow that ties into a God helps those who help themselves. I mean, some of us have been told to invite Jesus into our hearts that we functionally, practically, actually live as though that's where he's confined to. Right? I got Jesus. He's right here. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> right? Maybe we've got it wrong. Maybe instead of asking Jesus to come into our hearts, maybe we might ought to realize that Jesus didn't come to be invited into our hearts. Jesus came to invite us into his, his heart. If being, think about it this way, if being concerned with rescuing those who couldn't help themselves is what defined Jesus' message in ministry, 
If saving those who couldn't help themselves is what defines Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, if rescuing those who can't help themselves is the very character of God, then we who have been created in the image of God, we who have been saved by Christ, follow Jesus by helping those who can't help themselves. To love others like God loves us is to love them into salvation without judgment, without labeling, without condemnation, separate and apart from whether or not they can or will help themselves. It's to love others like God loves us whether or not the help they need is due to circumstances they can't control or even if it's because of a tempest of their own making. Our measure for helping others who can't help themselves, beloved, is not based on what our politics tell us or even what the law of the land prescribes. Helping others who can't help themselves is what we do because that's what Jesus said. Because that's what Jesus called us to do in following him. We can't help ourselves to grace. We cannot help ourselves to grace. We can't. But we can. We must receive and live out of the grace we have been given. Instead of trying to help ourselves, what if instead of leaving here and you just keep trying to help yourself, instead of trying to help ourselves, let us follow Jesus by helping others with humility, with gratitude, and with compassion. Let us share grace and extend it to each other. This grace we never earned, this grace we didn't deserve, this grace that gave us life, this grace that saved us despite ourselves, this grace that can and does work through all that is wrong in our lives and in this world to make things right, this grace that leads, empowers, and shapes us into the full and everlasting life that awaits us even today. Let us stop trying to help ourselves. Let us follow Jesus and live out of this grace we have been given by helping those who can help themselves. Because that's what Jesus calls us to do. Because that's what Jesus said.